0: Often, because of our habits and the most readily available form of transport, we become locked into or dedicated to one particular type of travel mode. We tend to either drive a car or catch public transport, but rarely both and not often incorporating multiple modes such as buses, trains, bikes and taxis in the one trip. So if I have to plan a new trip and I own a car, and I use the car most of the time, the only decision I make is what route to take and where to park. And similarly, if I'm used to travelling on railways, I tend to think of trains as the way to go. I might not even look for a closer bus route because that is not what I know about or are comfortable to use. Now we're moving into an era where we have more readily available information so we can understand the various options that are available which might include one or many modes of transport. And if we use say a bus, a taxi and then a -a rent-a-bike it would be good to be able to pay for the whole trip in one transaction using the one card. The approach of using multiple modes of transport with one payment for one trip is now called MAS, M-A-A-S, mobility as a service. We define the service we want, where we want to go to or from, at what time of day, and we learn the options in terms of availability, ease and cost. So who benefits? The provider, the individual and or the community. Dr. Ryan Falconer has a PhD in sustainability and technological policy. He is currently the city's leader in Western Australia for the Arab Consulting Group. He has also had recent experience in Canada. He has just presented a paper at the Australian Institute of Traffic Planning and Management National Conference in Perth titled The Mobility as a Service Value Proposition, Evidence from North America. I caught up with him immediately after his presentation and began by asking if mobility as a service was really just another name for Uber.
1: No, not at all. It's a very broad ecosystem. And I think if you take a bit of time to look and and sort of evaluate that ecosystem, you realise it's broadening out both in terms of the vendors in that market and also the types of services that they're offering. That is a very dynamic environment and it's it's expanding very rapidly.
0: And that variety of services might be bikes that you could hire for a short trip and then link to the railway station,
1: for example. That would be a good example. And it ranges from specific vendors who offer a physical service that you generally would pay for through subscription or more commonly through pay-as-you-go, Right through to -to peer-to-peer networks, which are less a vendor situation, more of a, I have an asset, I'm not using it, do I have an opportunity for someone to pay me to use it under a sort of a a de facto rental agreement?
0: It might be that I don't own a car, or if I do, I make it available for some people to be able to rent, for example.
1: Absolutely, and there's possibilities around bicycles, uh, possibilities around parking spaces.
0: And the thing about mass is that you can link together them. It's not as if it's just, I have to make a decision to get one mode of transport.
1: That certainly put forward as the allure of, of mass as, a, as an ecosystem is so this idea that you can very dynamically choose your modes of transport based on your particular condition at a time, trip purpose and all these other variables. Governments seem to be very happy
0: about it when private industry provides a service which doesn't cost government, what doesn't appear to cost government, certainly in the short term. Do you think that's some of the reasons why planners and and governments and that seem to have
1: embraced the Ubers and others of the world rather happily? I think that's part of it. I think there's a bit of a deer in the headlights situation. Technology and its luster, this new thing uh, and this opportunity to really augment the existing system, uh, the conventional movement and mobility system, An ability for the private sector to fill gaps that traditionally, let's say, the public sector has found it very hard to fill itself through new service offerings and technology being the platform to enable this to happen.
0: But it's not just filling the gaps. That can be part of the problem. Your experience in North America?
1: My experience is that uh, when it comes to service vendors, the private sector doing the gap filling or essentially more broadly providing the service, their interest is not going to be, in most cases, just limited to filling the gaps that the public sector would like the private sector to fill. That is not their MO. Their MO, and therefore their value set, is quite different and more broad than that. And that's where some of the tensions start.
0: Their value, it's quite legitimate for a private company to want to maximise profit. So, maximising profit doesn't necessarily maximise community fairness or broad benefit.
1: That's true, and it's not a, it's not always self interested either, because in the case of, say, more well known ride hailing companies, it's not necessarily in their interest to go out there and say, "We are here for profit. We want to just provide a service which is for the public good, and we're happy to have a limited market share." It's a complex situation where the marketing angle has to be made right. So it strikes that balance between, if you like, we're in this for ourselves, we're in this for the public good. Where's that sort of sweet spot? And so government policy,
0: we've talked in a previous AITPM event where Uber was present, and I'm not just picking on Uber, but they are a generic almost name for things. That's right. That we've spoken to them that there may be government regulations or requirements that don't maximise their profit but are important for us to allow them or whoever to operate.
1: Yeah look I think that's true and again I think we get back to this difference between selfish purely profit-driven enterprise and self-interested which still from a private sector point of view means we care about our bottom line but we look after that bottom line in a manner that doesn't alienate the people we want to work with and a recognition that a degree of support is required from the public sector to potentially maximise value. And that's where I think there's a lot of confusion in industry, exactly where that sweet spot is.
0: Have we not given
1: enough attention as to what it might look like when it's working? No, not at all, in my view. Uh, I think there is, certainly in Australia, and I've seen this a little bit in North America through experience, uh, I think a bit of a... uh, an approach from government to sit, sit back a bit and say to the private sector, you come up with your model and you tell us what that looks like. We will try and assess for ourselves if that makes sense and we'll, we'll prototype it. So that operating framework isn't one that I see government embracing enough and actually shaping enough. In, obviously in concert with the private sector, there's too much sort of sitting back and letting the private sector come up with the, with the, the initial playing field
0: we could end up going down the track and find we've gone a long way in a direction that is not the most desirable.
1: That's right, so for example, if there was a a partnership that said, uh, we'll give a a sort of contract, an operating contract to a private vendor to take care of a certain trip market, for example, station connections, um, that might introduce uh, more ridership to that vendor. That would be purposeful and something that uh, would reflect a KPI the public sector had set at the same time those new riders come to experience the convenience and so forth of the service being provided and promoted by the public sector and they start using that service for other trips now as the public sector i don't think you can set an operating framework as part of a partnership agreement and say you can only have the trips we tell you you can have because the private sector is not going to accept that that's the problem that point of control
0: the point is we don't want a good railway line undermined by a whole pile of people, even travelling in cars,
1: even if they're two or three in the car each time. Absolutely. And look, I, I am firmly of the belief that there is a overwhelming need for high quality uh, mass public transport. Um, there's a, a fundamental issue around urban physics and the ability to move people in volume. And uh, in a lot of cases, I don't think that these sort of small scale mobility services can take over that major people movement role. It's not a physical possibility, but there are certainly more marginal cases where indeed that is a potential. And if the public sector is assisting in some way, the private sector to gain market share, then you don't have that control over the trips that people are going to choose to make that might not be in that public good and inverted commas.
0: The thing is too, that you mentioned key performance indicators. Mm Part of that is knowing the information, a private company is not keen to let you know exactly what their performance indicators are, they tend to be commercial
1: information that they want to keep to themselves. Yeah, that's true and I can see the reason for that, mm. uh, there's there's absolutely a commercial angle to that. but. I don't think we can shy away from the fact there's also um, there's data in there that paints a picture that perhaps in this time of we're all working together and sort of uh, public-private partnership, there's data in there that doesn't speak nicely to what that relationship, mm. we, we hope that relationship really looks like. Mm. And it's no surprise then that some of these service providers are very guarded about that data
0: understandably Mm. but equally the government has a role to look after the broader community
1: absolutely so the again there's a big unanswered question there about what is the must-have when it comes to data to be able to sort of ring fence at least a baseline public good versus getting into territory where you are and potentially infringing on data that's commercial and confidence are you confident in mass? Where do you think it will go? Well, I believe the first point to make is that this call it phenomenon. This is actually probably more a process, to be honest, given the way it's evolving this this ecosystem. It's not going to go away. So I think it is it is now a part of the transport environment. Uh, it's it's only going to get more significant as uh, as an ecosystem. There's no doubt about that. I believe that we what might have been normal sort of 10, 15 years ago with respect for the transport and mobility system, that is long gone. And we will continue to evolve and there will be pros associated with new mobility and there will be cons associated with new mobility. And as a consequence, government has a role in there to play to move the needle more towards a a common good uh, sort of scenario versus one that's maybe not representing the values that most consumers and the public sector would like to see.
0: Cross subsidy is really what you still want to get out of the system, in a way, isn't it?
1: Oh, look, I think so. So, yeah, change is happening. It will continue, it can't be stopped. So, the the mo really is to leverage the best of it uh, using effective government policy.
0: In conclusion, then, is it almost like a user charge where you can vary the amount depending on what you want to encourage? It's often talked about just for cars. Could it be
1: talked about for mass, all the elements of a mobility service? So, look, I think pay-per-use is essential and it has to reflect the real costs associated with provision of these services. I don't know how blunt the tool needs to be or will be. I think there will be an increasing need for things like paying particular amounts depending on time of day, paying particular amounts depending on where you're travelling to and paying particular amounts depending on the mode that you've chosen to use. Ryan, thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. Thank you.
0: And that was Dr Ryan Falconer from the Arab Consulting Group. And also from the AITPM National Conference, we spoke to keynote speaker Paul Steely-White, a passionate advocate for safer streets in New York. Both interviews can be heard at drivenmedia.com.au. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.